think about, again, that, that liberal modern perspective. I suspect you know people who might think that Jesus was a good religious teacher, but, and, but that he was still fully human and, and that he, he would have shared then in the cultural attitudes that he would have been raised in. And so they would view Jesus from just that human perspective. So, of course, he would absorb the attitudes of his culture towards other people. And make no mistake, the the Jews, like most ancient peoples, viewed themselves as as kind of above the other races. There's a uh, a three-part prayer that the Jews would say. It's in the Talmud. It, It comes back from... Ultimately, the source is from Rabbi Judah. But this is what the, the Jews were taught, the, the Jewish men were taught to pray every day in the Talmud. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a Gentile. I mean, not a Jew. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a slave. They took pride in their, their, gen, their race, their gender, and their social position. And it's true that the Jews of that time, they, they thought of themselves as the chosen people, chosen by God. Therefore, you know, they weren't like those Gentiles who had it all wrong. Um, I heard a modern liberal scholar talk about this passage, and interpreted how Jesus dismissed this woman because he had a low view of Gentiles and women and that God used this woman's faith to open Jesus' eyes to be more open to that of other people. Um, And that's why after this miracle, he goes on to do other miracles in the Jewish, non-Jewish territories around the Sea of Galilee. So that's an interpretation I've heard. I want to respond to that this morning. I want to kind of give a different perspective. And I'm going to respond in three parts. First, I want to look at this passage in context of the larger story of Mark. Second, I want to talk about how God's plan of salvation was always designed to include all peoples, even though it would come through the Jews. And third, I want to talk about Jesus' special work as the Jewish Messiah versus the work he would do as the Son of God. So that's how I'm going to uh, plan it out. First, to Mark, the, the larger story that's within Mark. So to begin with, we got to ask, why was Jesus in Syria? He had gone outside of the territory of Israel, up to near Tyre and Sidon. Nowadays, that would be in the area of Lebanon. But it was just another Roman province by this point. But Tyre and Sidon... Are, are, are in the Canaanite areas of old. Um, so that's why this woman is sometimes called the Syrophoenician Syria and Phoenicia, or sometimes she's called the Canaanite. Um, it's the same, same people grouping. Why is he up there? Well, to understand that, we've got to go back to Mark 1 and see what happened when Jesus responded to this guy, the, the man with leprosy. The leper approached Jesus, and and Jesus healed him. But when he healed him, he said, don't tell anyone. Don't don't let people know about this. Well, that didn't work. I mean, can 
Can you imagine the poor guy? Like, his life has been changed forever by being healed by Jesus. Of course he can't keep that a secret. He's got to tell people. And so it says he went out, and he, he began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. That became the pattern of Jesus' ministry. He had to deal with overwhelming crowds. The demands of the crowds were constantly pressing on him. And you'll note, if you just kind of breeze through it, he's always trying to get to, seek, to, to quiet places or desolate places so that he could do other things rather than just respond to the press of people. Um, and, and one of Jesus' roles was to try to take the, the message of the kingdom to all the towns of Israel. And so at one point, to do that, because he wouldn't be able to get there himself, he sends out his, his disciples, his apostles, the 12 apostles, two by two, and says, go to the towns of Israel and proclaim to them the message that the kingdom of God is at hand, you know, what they'd heard him say. And so they go out and about. So while they're out and about, um, they, they re- return, having completed their work, and they they want to tell Jesus what they did. You know, you, you, you go out and you report back and talk about that and kind of get um, after-action reports and everything. Well, when that happens, there's no time to, to have that conversation. The press of the crowds is so great, the demands, that it says they don't even have time to eat, let alone actually have a real conversation for Jesus to focus on his 12 apostles. So what do they do? This is something we talked about back at Thanksgiving, if you may remember. Well, because of that, this is they, try, they get in their boat, and they go try to find a, a quiet place, a desolate place. But the crowds see them in the boat, follow along, and when they land, there's the, there's the crowd again. And that's, we get the story of the feeding of the 5,000, because Jesus spends the day with that crowd instead of focusing on his disciples. So then after that, they again get in the boat, they go somewhere else, they end up going to the place called Genesaret, and I'll just read real quick. It says, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. No matter where Jesus went, he could not give his full attention to the disciples, the ones whom he would pass on this, this ministry, this mission, after his death which was getting ever closer. There's another dynamic. While the disciples were out, they got the news that John the Baptist had been executed by Herod. There was a lot of connections between John the Baptist and Jesus. Could they be next? And then in Mark 7, what we talked about last week. So Herod is the secular power. But then they had an argument with the religious authorities, the scribes that came from Jerusalem, the people who ran the temple. And there's, again, a big conflict between Jesus and these religious leaders, the very ones who would organize Jesus' death. So there's danger involved. There's tension. That's the context of this passage And I think there's a a need for Jesus to get alone with his disciples. They need rest. They need time to, to, they need to be out of the danger zone for a little while. So they can get, so they can take a breath. They can feel secure. 
And so they need to go somewhere where they won't draw attention to themselves. So Jesus takes them outside of Israel into the area of Tyre and Sidon. And so now we're back to our passage. They go away from where they've done most of their ministry to where you assume people would not know who he was and would not care if he was the Jewish Messiah. They would have no interest in that. And it almost works. Except for one woman. Somehow this woman had heard about Jesus. And her daughter is, is sick, is oppressed by an evil spirit. And someone must have told her about Jesus and who he was. Now the, the, the version of Mark doesn't say it, but in the Matthew, when he tells the story, he gives us a detail that when she approached Jesus, she referred to him as the son of David, the Lord. So, so maybe even though she was a Canaanite of a different religion, and the, the Canaanites worshipped the god Baal back in the, the old days, so that's the opponent of God, um, somehow she had come to see and believe that he really was the Jewish Messiah. And she accepted him on those terms. She came with faith to believe that he could do something. And so she comes seeking his help. What happens if Jesus goes with her to heal her daughter? I mean, they're trying to keep a low profile. They're trying not to be noticed. What happens if he goes with her? The crowds return. They, all the chaos, all the demands. Because people would hear about that miracle, and then more people would come. And his disciples would once again um, not get what they need. Time with Jesus. He would be, to help her, would literally be taking the, the, the food away from them. What they need away from, be at the cost of the disciples. And so Jesus at first just, just tries to hope she'll go away. She doesn't. And the disciples come, Jesus, you've got to send her away. She's not going to leave until she, she has a chance to, to talk to you. And so he goes, and when he talks to her, he uses the form of teaching that, that he uses most often, right? How did Jesus teach? He taught in parables. And so he gives her a picture illustration of, of the situation. And so he says, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So that's a parable form. And think about, and by the, the word for dogs in this case is the diminutive of the, the Greek word for dogs. In other words, it's not dogs, it's doggies. It's, it's more like a pet dog, not those scavenger dogs, you know, outside. And so it's a diminutive form of the word in Greek. And and so, but the parable is like this. Who, if, you, if food was limited and you were having mealtime and you had your table set up and, you know, you have your children there and they're hungry and it's mealtime, what would it be if you went and took the bread on the table and gave it to the dogs so that your children went hungry? That would be horrific, right? But that's what would happen if Jesus helped this woman. He would be taking the bread off the table for the disciples and giving it to someone who, who, who wasn't a part of the family. 
And so he says, let the children be fed first. It doesn't mean that there would never be time for her or what she needed. But she, he had to focus on the children, the disciples who needed his time. Not just literal bread, though that too, but the bread of his presence, the bread of life that he was. What's amazing is this woman gets it. She sees it. And she speaks within his parable. And she has the faith to, to believe in this way. So, so there, was an, there was an assumption in the statement of what, of what I'd said before. You see, when she responds to him, she says, she's convinced that he could heal and that all she needed was a crumb. She did not need Jesus' full attention. She did not need Jesus to come with her to her house to where her child was for him to heal. She believes in him enough, faith enough, that if he speaks a word, her daughter will be healed. The assumption was is that for him to take care of her daughter, because that's what people who came to Jesus always assumed, that he would have to physically be there, physically touch them in order to heal. And it's only a rare few that seem to get that idea that Jesus could speak with the word, and she's one of them. And so she says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dog, doggies under the table eat the children's crumbs. All I need is a crumb of your time. In other words, you don't have to come with me. You can do it from where you are. And Jesus, I, I probably impressed about her, her faith, says, yes, you're right, I can. And for that statement, your daughter is healed. The demon has left your daughter. You may go your own way. So he's able to give her what he wants without taking the bread away from the disciples out of their hands. And note how when he healed her, w would that have drawn the crowds? Well, she might have gone around and said, yes, well, Jesus healed my daughter. And they would have asked, well, did he come and lay hands on her? Uh, no, he just said something. And like, oh, well, whatever. You know, like, that would draw the crowd that those other miracles where, where he would have come. So because of her faith, he was able and willing to help her while still fulfilling his mission in that moment. So that's the larger context. And I think that helps us see that passage in a different way. Um, the second part I want to do is God's plan of salvation was always meant to be for all peoples and not just the Jews. God had to pick one man, one person, and, and turn him into one nation through whom he would bring salvation for all people. In the time before Abraham, people had lost touch with God. They, they're, they're so steeped in the worship of the pagan idols and the false gods that God could not get them to understand who he was or the way he worked. So in order to reintroduce himself to humanity, God picked Abraham, and through Abraham, he built him into the nation of Israel, or the Hebrews, or later called the Jews. But he started with one man, and when he picked him, he says, I will bless you and make your name great, and I will make you into a great nation. And through you, all nations will be blessed. 
God's intent was to bring salvation through the Jewish people that would eventually um, impact every per- person. And, and through that one man, that one people, God would separate them out from other nations and he would begin to teach them what they needed to know, that there was one God, that God was the creator of all, that God made ma- men and women in his, in his image, um, and that God cared about our moral behavior, that he was a God that cared about how they lived. And all that he began to impart to the Jews so that ultimately they could bring that to everybody. And throughout the story, the story of the Old Testament, God kept including non-Jews in the story. And I think he did that on purpose as a sign of this salvation coming to all eventually. And so you might know the stories of like Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, who got included into God's people. Or the Moabite, Moabitess widow, Ruth, yeah, that she was included as part of God's people and even became uh, part of the, the ancestry of Jesus. Or how in a certain time Elijah, the prophet, was sent up to Tyre and Sidon by God, the same area Jesus is at, where he interacted and helped a widow survive their famine and even healed her son at one point. So there's a connection with Elijah and the story we, just, we were looking at. All those were signs that God was working towards the salvation of all tribes and peoples and languages. And then the prophet started to, to, to just make it, spell it out. So in Isaiah 25, I think it's a great place to, to kind of see that. It talks about the feast that God will provide. It says, on this mountain, meaning Jerusalem, the Jerusalem is built on Mount, Mount Zion. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. It goes on to describe the feast even more. But the point is that the feast he would provide, it wouldn't just be crumbs, it wouldn't just be bread, it would be a feast available to all. And then, then he goes on to say, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. So the Jewish Messiah would do the work that would swallow up death forever, not just for Jews, but for all peoples, the shroud. God would deal with that then. That's what God's working towards. My third part of this response is Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and his ministry focus of his life was the Jewish people. But as the Son of God, he would open up salvation to all peoples. But as the Jewish Messiah, he was to proclaim the kingdom of God in all the towns of Israel. That's why you keep seeing throughout his thing, he's always going to the next town. Because all people, it, it, all people had to have the chance to hear about the coming of the kingdom. That's why he sent out his disciples. And that was set from the very beginning. His first message, if you go to Luke 4, the first message of Jesus he gave in the synagogue, he talks about... Um, There'll be good news for the poor, the blind, the lame, and all of them. And the people are like, that's a great message. You know, they love to hear that. But then he says, but also this message is going to go for the people outside of Israel. And he says, just as Elijah was sent to the widows 
of uh, outside of Israel, the widow of Tyre and Sidon. So God's message will go beyond just the Jewish people. That part they didn't like so much. Jesus did all kinds of things that pointed to the fact that he, he was not just, um, he didn't just care about the Jews, but to all peoples. Most of the Jews, when they traveled, they, they went from the northern Galilee to, to Jerusalem by traveling outside around Samaria. They didn't want to go where their Samaritans were. Jesus went through Samaria. And in fact, he spent days sometimes interacting with you know, one particular town of Samaritans. Um, other signs that Jesus would, he never spoke disparagingly of the Gentiles, like how bad those Gentiles were and all their stuff. In fact, he often talked more about how the Jews were, were failing to live up to what they were called to do. Um, he also healed a Roman centurion. He even healed one of the Romans, a Roman centurion servant when asked, and praised the faith of that Roman because he trusted that Jesus could act from a distance as well. So, so Jesus was not, did not have that focus of Jews are the only ones. And he knew that the, God, the good news ultimately would go everywhere. Mark 13, 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. In Luke 13, he talks about how, and people will come from east and west and north and south and take their places at the table or the feast in the kingdom of God, referring back to that promise in Isaiah. He always saw ahead, after his ministry, so as the Messiah, he had to go to the, to the lost sheep. But as the Son of God, he would open the door for all peoples. And he would give his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. First John 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not our sins only, also for the sins of the whole world. That's how he would undo the shroud of death and open the door for the kingdom of God to all people. Romans 1.16 is the perfect summary. It says, The good news of Jesus, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greeks or to the other nations, the non-Jews. So that's my response to the initial question. But what can we take away from this? How, do, how can this matter for us as believers? So I, first, I believe that we can trust the Scriptures enough to ask hard questions, right? It, it's okay. I, I, I know sometimes we get nervous when people seem critical of the Bible. I remember when I was a new Christian, and I was in a college great books class, and we were talking, I think we were reading Augustine, and someone, one, out, one other guy in the class made a, a comment very critical towards Christianity, and I came up with a brilliant comeback that amounted to something like, nuh uh. Yeah, like, I just, just was innerly offended, but I didn't know how to respond. And the professor, I remember he shut down that conversation. He, he didn't want us arguing about that. But I note how defensive I was. And God has been teaching me, and is still teaching me, how not to be defensive on his behalf. That the Bible can handle hard questions. In fact, the more I look at it, the, the less I need to worry about the questions people bring to it. Because he, he is more than able to answer those kind of questions. In fact, um, 
I think he's teaching me that when someone does ask something critical or like that, says, that's an, that's an interesting question. Can we talk more about that? Or, man, I hear your concern. Can I tell you what I've learned about this? Is finding ways that those questions can actually be opportunities rather than our, our guard goes up and we just react as if they're attacking us. There's another point about this, too, is, is we have... Insider questions versus outsider questions. We have insider questions that we love to talk about in the church, like talking about um, predestination or tongues or baptism and how to do that the right way. And th those are in-house questions for Christians, and they could be important, and it's good to have right thinking on those. But I guarantee you, your modern secular neighbor can care less about that kind of stuff. They have their own questions, outsider questions. And that's what I, I want us to figure out. What are the outsider questions? What, what's, what are they thinking about? Because we might be answering the wrong questions when we talk to them. We might be trying to convince them of something they don't even give a rip about. And so I ask for your help. As, as a pastor, I don't get to interact with people sometimes as much as I used to in the old days. What are the questions your neighbors, your coworkers are asking? And how can we learn how to answer them with grace and gentleness? How can we respond to them like Jesus would? That's one takeaway I want us to think about from this. The second takeaway is a tension. It's a tension I think we see in this passage. And it's one I have felt all my ministry, and maybe you have as well. And that is the tension between the, the tension between a goal-focused ministry versus a people-focused ministry. So at, as we focus on things, we, we, we set goals. We want to do things. We want to plan out. To, uh, we plan worship. And yet sometimes in the midst of doing the plans we make, we might not pay too much attention to that, the, the person that's seeking us in that moment. I think of sometimes before worship, I'm so absorbed in the message, and I think what I have to say on Sunday morning is, you know, everything. I found, humblingly, that sometimes it's that little conversation I have before church that might actually make more of a dis difference for that one person than I would have ever thought. And I think God puts people around us and wants us to attend to them, be, be open to them. And yet, we can't not focus on the goals and strategies of our mission, uh, the work. Um, it's, you know, if someone wants to talk, is that person an interruption for ministry? Or is that, or is that person the ministry we're called to do in that moment? And I want to learn better how to do that. I want to learn from Jesus how to do that. Um, I remember when Cheryl and I were first married and I was doing youth ministry in uh, Cambridge, Ohio. This was a long time ago, far, far away. And we were, um, we were planning a ski trip. And the, the thought was you want to use the ski trip to build up the group, right? You want to get lots of kids to come. They like skiing. You, know, you take them skiing, maybe they'll start coming to the youth group stuff, and it'll be a good thing. 
So we put all this push into doing it, organize it all, two kids sign up. And these were two kids that, that weren't, weren't key in the social no- networks of their school. Let's just put it that way. In fact, one was a homeschooler. And, and so we ended up, I was so disappointed. I felt like, oh, this is such a way. We're going on this whole day just for these two kids. Well, of course, God's got to deal with me on that, right? And so it ended up being a very important day. And, and I don't know, in, in its own way. As we go up with Dustin and Amanda, and we get on the slopes, these two kids were very tentative. They, they weren't athletes, and we never left the bunny hill, right? Like, the whole time, we're just getting them, you know, um, and they were, they were a bit awkward. And, but, you know, we were able to focus, because it was only two, we were able to focus on just them the whole day. And I have a feeling those were two kids who didn't get, get a lot of attention in their lives, right? They were, they were two that got left out. And if we'd have had a big group, they would have been left behind to figure it out themselves while we were probably skiing with the kids on the, the other hills. That's what I mean. Goal-focused versus ministry. There's dangers on both sides. You could be so, so distracted by the demands of people that you never get around to doing the important stuff. But at the same time, how do you be attentive to those God puts in your path? I want to learn from Jesus how to do that better. I want us, as followers of Jesus, to to learn from him, to get to know him better so that we can respond to people in the way he would do it. That we can love people the way he would love them. That's what I want us to hear and think about this morning as we, as we respond to this passage. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you, you loved us enough to take time for us. And that Jesus, now that you are in heaven, ascended, that you can meet us all. That you don't have to choose between which people to hang out with, but, but, but through your spirit, we can come to you at this time, at this moment, with whatever's on our heart, with whatever need we have. Father, help us to be more like your son, Jesus, and respond to people in love and in grace the way he would. Give us the wisdom and discernment to do that. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. In closing, the worship team would like to sing a song to just bring us all to a place of of culmination with this message. It's a familiar song that you're going to know. The chorus says that our God is a God who comes to save. He's come to set the captives free. And one day, every knee will bow before him. So as we sing this, I pray that the words will be a blessing to your heart.